Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome to Full Prefrontal, Exposing the Mysteries of Executive Function. This podcast is fueled by three goals. One, to explain what executive function is and the role of prefrontal lobes in self-actualization. By translating the research findings from neuroscience, psychology, sociology, and many, many other fields in a meaningful way so that people can actually appreciate the complexity of it. Number two is to help connect the plight of the current self with the vision of the future self. And the third goal is to help people create a playbook for personal success by mastering executive function with all the tools that our incredible guests bring. One such barrier today we're going to talk about is if you want to better yourself, uh, something encouraging needs to come from within. And however, who's sitting inside? There's a a highly critical person sitting inside. And there's a self-critical internal dialogue, such as you're stupid, you're an idiot, you'll never amount to anything. What's wrong with you? Uh, That's pretty much my one line summary is what's wrong with you? (laughs) So uh, we need to really rethink if this is the right way to bring upon change. And are we making that tone, you know, uh, tuning out that sound? And um, is it really tuning down or tuning out the sound or reprogramming the tape recorder. And that's why it's so critical to uh, understand the research that uh, my guest is going to present. And welcome. This is Dr. Christine Neff. She is currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, She's a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, conducting the first empirical studies on self-compassion nearly 20 years ago. And this is really important to understand people. If you ask your grandmother, she probably will say, yes, be nice to yourself and the world. But to empirical study means somebody has to actually measure it. <laughs> so this is not a small feat. And, and then in addition to writing numerous academic articles and books uh, and chapters on this topic, she's the author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. Uh, she also... Um, is she has developed many programs, but uh, along with Dr. Chris Germer, uh, she has developed an empirically supported training program, and that's called Mindful Self Compassion. And I we will be linking a lot of resources that she has created for us. But this is a course I highly recommend. Lately, I've been recommending to my uh, clients, uh, uh, particularly those who need a little TLC uh, when they're alone. And this is really valuable to be with you and Dr. Kristen alone <laughs> on the computer so that you get the guided uh, instructions that you need. And lastly, she's uh, going to publish um, a, a fantastic new book. I can't wait to read that. It's called Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power and Thrive. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Excited. <laughs> uh, so excited. And I love this. We'll, we'll talk about this 
fierce compassion, and particularly you have uh, addressed it to uh, to women. So I can't wait to hear that. So let's begin. Uh, since our podcast is about executive function, which entails this adaptive flexibility, goal orientedness, intentional focus, and goal directed persistence, um, and a lot of these skill set that requires somebody to be in charge to guide the self into uh, maybe better outcomes for the future self. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you as a psychologist, as a researcher, uh, but when you were younger uh, as a child and a young adult, when did you discover your um, your knowledge about self or this ability to reflect upon your strengths and challenges and use specific strategies to get things done? Um, how were you in executive function? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Developmental, it usually happens sometime in adolescence. And I think I was about average, right? I, I definitely, I was, I was pretty good, for instance, at um, studying. I was got good grades. And I think part of that probably is because of good executive function skills in terms of, you know, I was aware when I understood something, when I didn't, when I had to restudy something. Um, but, you know, it's funny, it wasn't really until um, later. I mean, I could, I mean, hmm. It's not quite sure. I was always kind of interested in spirituality. For instance, the book Ram Dass's book "Be Here Now" was on my coffee table growing up. I love. So I that. suppose I, I I was reflecting on things like mindfulness at a pretty young age. Um, you know, and mindfulness is a little bit different than executive function, although they're they're closely related. Um, so that was probably all there. Uh, but it probably wasn't until I was older, actually, when I until I discovered self-compassion that I really understood not just cognitive function or executive function, you might say, but emotion regulation in terms of how, how are you emotionally relating to yourself and how is your emotional tenor towards yourself changing your thoughts and behaviors. So, I mean, I, I you know, it was occurring, but I think I wasn't explicitly really aware of the incredible difference it makes. The emotional side of things, the warmth is it warm or cold, harsh, the, 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 ten, the emotional tenor of the conversation was, wasn't really something I discovered until later, I would say. And and I think it's so interesting. Um, I, I love the the reference that Ramdas' book was your on your coffee table. So there's definitely a culture of pause and think about things, uh, yes. which can be really uh, a very strong ingredient to promote that. And mm-hmm. second thing, as you said, um, it is not, I guess, it doesn't become uh, a, it doesn't come into focus until it's a problem. So it sounds like you have had a lot of, uh, you enjoyed the benefits of your naturally uh, developing prefrontal system <laughs> that allowed you to uh, learn as you engaged with with the world. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It was, it was useful, right? It allowed me to get good grades and and think well, and all those things. Um, but, but as you know, thinking is, um, is useful in some respects, and it causes a lot of suffering in other respects, right? Exactly. So it's kind of, it's like, yeah, it's also, it's also a problem, especially if you take everything you think really literally and really seriously. So, so, uh, you know, since we, um, uh, there's so many things to talk about. There are several different aspects of your work um, in self-compassion that I'm really looking forward to us exploring. But for starters, I know your postdoctoral work was focused on uncovering the potential downside of the quest for higher self-esteem. Uh, so 
Um, and and, and <laughs> I love this 80s movement that said, let's cultivate self-esteem in children. Yeah. But we, uh, you two have discovered, or rather you came to realization that um, it's probably not the best idea. So what are the pitfalls of that you have uncovered that have emerged from this 80s movement of the pursuit of high self-esteem? And how are self-esteem and self-compassion similar? And how are they different? Right. So, um, yeah, so was, there, there was actually a big backlash in psychology, especially social psychology, against seeing self-esteem as a panacea. Now, first of all, just to say, what is self-esteem if you define it as an evaluation of self-worth? I'm a worthy person. I'm, you know, I'm no good, somewhere in between. And we certainly know that it's better to have high self-esteem than low self-esteem because a lot of psychopathology stems from lack of feelings of worth right? So depression, anxiety, you know, in the extreme case, suicidal ideation. Um, But what psychologists were discovering is a lot of the ways people get their sense of self-worth are pretty unhealthy, right? So the, the, um, for instance, social comparison, people have to feel special and above average, especially in American culture. We need to feel special and above average to feel good about ourselves, which means it sets up this constant social comparison. You know, is he more successful than I am? You know, is she prettier than I am? Is, you know, she smarter than I am? All those constant comparisons as we try to feel special and above average means that we're kind of pitting ourselves in competition with other people. So for instance, why do, why do little kids start to bully others? You know, either with relational aggression or actually physical aggression, Part of it is the quest for self-esteem. You know, they're trying to feel more powerful like the cool kid by picking on or putting others down. So that's and that, that bullying behavior is, you know, continues into continues into adulthood in, in sometimes more subtle ways, sometimes not so subtle. So that's a problem. Um, narcissism is, is also a problem that stems from the quest for high self-esteem. Some people are so invested in having high self-esteem that they, they start distorting reality. You know, they see themselves as superior. They can't even entertain any sort of criticism of themselves because it would be, you know, it would be just too much to lose their self-esteem. So they start distorting and starting start to gaslight and all those things, which are a problem. Um, but, but probably the biggest problem with self-esteem is that it's contingent, typically, not always, right? But it's contingent on success, right? So people are, um, for, for women, actually, the number one domain of self-esteem in which we invest our self-esteem is appearance. So you have high self-esteem when you look the way you want to look, and you don't have high self-esteem when you don't look the way you want to look. And because of the standards of beauty are so impossibly high for a woman, it sets up a lot of suffering for a woman. Um, but also other things like uh, approval, you know, how much other people like you. It's not, it's not like how much your mother likes you. It's how much other people like you. It's a really kind of poor source of information, but we, put, we invest a lot in that. And then also performance, right? Am I doing well at those things that are important to me, whether it's school or sports or, or work? Um, and so it's kind of a fair weather friend, right? It's, it's, self-esteem is there for you when you succeed, but what happens when you fail in, in those things that are important to you? Your self-esteem deserts you. And so that, so and I was I was learning all about that in my postdoctoral studies. And um, I'd been practicing self-compassion, which is not a judgment or an evaluation of worth. It's just, it's a way of being kind to yourself, just because you're a flawed human being. It's, like, it's an intrinsic, unconditional sense of self-worth. You know, all human beings are worthy of a compassionate, kind response. Um, and so when you relate to yourself with kindness and support, is there a 
especially when you need it. And that's when you fall flat on your face or you get rejected or, you know, you're feeling badly about yourself. You can say, well, okay, maybe I didn't succeed at this goal, but just because I failed doesn't mean that I am a failure. It doesn't, you know, damn my sense of a worthiness as a person. And that's really where it, you, you might say it's, it's, a, it's a healthy source of self-esteem because if you have more self-compassion, you're also going to have higher self-esteem, but it's not, it's not contingent the way it is for most people. And thank you for taking the time because I think um, uh, many listeners may just have these compartmental notions of things, you know, uh, you somehow have, or, or you, or you gain self-esteem by like almost like, you know, planting seeds. It's, it's a process of living a life where you have a relationship with your experiences and you really showcase the difference between how we relate to success versus how we relate to failures. Right. And those who relate to them with equanimity are likely to do better. But I was just going to weave in some, some uh, recently I kind of read uh, this <laughs> interesting data about narcissism, you know, the longest study, I think uh, they, or not, they um, attract people between 1982 to 2009. And there's a real surge of uh, a higher, um, you know, responses to question sites. Uh, I think I'm a special person. I like to be the center of attention. You know, I have a natural talent for influencing people. So they tend to boast a little bit. But one cute study I thought was so funny was this song lyrics. Over time, they found that the words such as I, me, mine have significantly increased. Um, and that, and we, us, and, and, and as social have gone down. So I, I think... So let's talk about self-compassion and, and also maybe you can help people understand that self-compassion is not a weakness because I think there's some warped idea that beating yourself up feels right thing to do. It doesn't feel good, but feels like if I reprimand myself, I'll perform better. So where are we getting it yeah. wrong? Right. So, I mean, that used to be the idea with a parenting as well, right? That, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. And what we know from the parenting literature is yeah, you might get your kid to obey, but you're gonna really damage that kid in many ways psychologically that are gonna be harmful to their success in the long run, right? And so what we know is you know, authoritative parenting where you're firm but warm is actually the most successful type of parenting. And the same with self-compassion, right? So self-compassion isn't like just letting yourself off the hook, just saying, okay, that's fine. I robbed a bank, oh well, you know, it's, it's not like it's not mushy, it's not <laughs> indulgent. So if we care about ourselves, just like a caring parent, we're going to want to, we're going to want to achieve our goals. We're going to want to work hard. You know, we're going to want to learn from our mistakes. We're going to want to grow. We're going to stop, you know, we're going to want to change unhealthy behaviors, but we do it because we care, not because we feel we're inadequate as we are. So, you know, it's like the motivation of care as opposed to the motivation of fear. And the research is very clear that it's more effective, right? We have less fear of failure. Because so if you know that it's okay if you fail, because it doesn't damn you, your worth as a person, it's like everyone fails. Um, then when you fail, A, you can say, okay, well, I failed. Everyone fails. What can I learn from this failure? And so mm. that type of learning orientation actually makes it a lot more easy to succeed because we know that failures are our best teacher. But if we shame ourselves when we fail, we can't actually learn when we're full of shame. So it allows us to learn from our failure. Um, it, it, it gives us the grit and determination to try again, because again, we aren't so afraid of failure. Okay, I'll try again. If I fail again, well, I'll just pick myself up again. So it leads to persistence. It leads to grit. It leads to a, like a growth mindset. Um, and, and it's actually more effective 
over time. And so, you know, the, the thing about self-criticism, and it's kind of interesting because it, I wonder if it relates to your work on executive function, but what it does is it buttresses the illusion of control, mm. right? So we really like to feel that we're in control and it feels, it almost feels better to know I should have gotten it right. And like, to you know, be mad at yourself for not getting it right, because at least you can cling to the illusion, well, that I could have gotten it right. Perfection is possible if I were just to try a little harder, you know, and open to the reality okay. that sometimes we try our best and just, we still fail. We do our best. It's not like we have no input Agency. into the system. We do, but yeah. we certainly aren't in control and we certainly can't control our outcomes. And that's scary. You know, so for instance, my son, my son is autistic. And um, I've noticed with a lot of autistic kids, failing or making mistakes is incredibly scary. I mean, it is for everyone, but it just, it's, I can see it just so much clear, more clearly with him. You would think he would be super self-compassionate being raised by me. And he actually is learning the skills slowly, but his first instinct is self-criticism because in his mind, that's like, okay, that's the sense of control. You know, he gets mad at himself or making a mistake and that makes him feel safe because it's scary to think that he he forgets things sometimes like we all do you know and so it's almost what self-compassion allows us to do is it allows us to give up the illusion of control at the same time so i talk about it as you know the dance of acceptance and change or, or these two sides of self-compassion fierce and tender self-compassion tender self-compassion is like accepting okay we aren't in total control we make mistakes Stuff happens. This is part of life. Can we open to that without, you know, trying to fight it all the time? But the other side of self-compassion is saying, yes, and what can I do to help? It doesn't mean like we give up. We want to do our best, you know, in, in the future. So we need both. Just like a parent, we love our kids unconditionally, but we want them, we want them to achieve their best. It's both simultaneously. And I love that because I think uh, as you have, talked about this, you have written about this, is that it's about merely being kind to yourself. And kind doesn't mean loose and lack of expectations or permissiveness. Kind exactly. means tolerating the, the mishap in between as you're molding yourself to become a different person. And this is lifelong quest. You're going to continue to change until you die. Yeah, right. right. And then you really <laughs> change once you die. <laughs> <laughs> to be radically different. <laughs> so you know, this reminds me of uh, my work. You know, working with um, uh, people on the spectrum and ADHD and and people with the mild traumatic brain injury. Uh, the concept of friendship making. You know that that um, that how do we find commonality and relate uh, kindly, tolerate the talk that's coming your way, but also mm-hmm. share interest and, and kind of have something common to do, except mm-hmm. here in self-compassion world, making friends is with self. And yeah. so I came across this interesting research that talked about almost 25% when asked uh, that when they're suffering um, or when they're in pain, uh, they report to have no one to talk to. So obviously self-compassion can be so valuable because in those lonely moments, the one friend that you can rely on is self. So could you tell us a little bit about, is that a right way to think about self-compassion is learning a mechanism of making friendship with self? And is there any benefit in that approach? Yeah, well, so that's that's primary. If you go to my website, self-compassion is treating yourself like a good friend. I mean, the friendship metaphor is, is the most easily understandable Right, because it's something we know. We know how to be supportive towards you know to someone if they're if they're struggling. 
we know how to be kind. We know how to be warm. Having said that, so self-compassion is more than kindness. You might say that's kind of the core of it. That's really the heart of it. The thing that's easiest to access, to understand. So if we talk to kids, for instance, I just talk about being a good friend to yourself. But um, kindness alone doesn't necessarily guarantee you good outcomes because in some ways you can say a narcissist is kind to themselves, right? <laughs> yes. You know, so it's, it's it, but it's true. It's like kindness alone, it's, it's essential, it's the core, but it's not enough. So in my model, there's actually three components of self-compassion and all three need to be there to make it a stable and healthy mindset. Uh, and, and they tend to correlate and go together, but, you know, not necessarily. So in addition to kindness, first of all, mindfulness mm. is really essential to self-compassion. So mindfulness, mindfulness allows us to see clearly what's happening. Mm. And so, first of all, the first thing we need to notice is that we're suffering or that we're struggling. And you might think that's obvious, but it's we often aren't mindful of our suffering. We're, one, we're doing one of two things. Either we're avoiding it and suppressing it. Not a problem, or we're so busy, we just aren't even thinking about it. Like if you had a friend, you said, "Hey, I need to talk. I'm having you're struggling. Like I'm too busy. I'm too busy." You know, yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. do that with ourselves. I'm just too busy. Or the, the other thing we do is we might we do, we get lost in the pain. We get lost in the drama. So there's no perspective, and we need some perspective to step outside of ourselves to say, "Hey, you're really having a hard time. Can I help?" Right? And so <laughs> yeah. mindfulness is what provides us that perspective. And again, that perspective is crucial for us to be able to see clearly what's happening, not to fool ourselves. Like it's not like positive thinking, like, yeah, you know, everything's great with mindfulness. Mindfulness isn't necessarily positive thinking because mindfulness, actually things aren't so great. Maybe, maybe you need a little work here, you know, a constructive criticism, right? There, maybe there are some issues that need to be addressed that mindfulness is what gives us the clarity to be able to do that. And then really important is a sense of common humanity, right? So compassion by definition is a connected way of approaching suffering, right? So as opposed mm-hmm. to pity, which is like feeling sorry for someone or feeling sorry for oneself, the, you know, the word in Latin come means with, to suffer with, it's like inherently oh, connected. Yeah, that. That's yeah. why you would like it, Sushita, if I had compassion for you, because like, hey, I've been there, but you wouldn't like if I pitied you, it's like, oh, I feel sorry for you. Right. Yes. It's night and day in terms of the feeling and also night and day in the terms of how we approach ourselves. Yes. So we're framing it again. It's kind of that, that larger perspective. It's not actually, even though it's called self-compassion, I once had, once had a Buddhist monk say to me, Oh, you just mean inner compassion. Like you don't need a self with self-compassion. In other words, it's just <laughs> compassion directed inwardly and outwardly. But in many ways, the sense of self recedes in self-compassion because it's not about me. It's about, oh, this is the human experience. Everyone's imperfect. Everyone struggles. You know, I'm not in total control of things. What's happening is, is, is tied to so many complex causes and conditions that are way beyond my ability to, you know, control what's happening. And so, um, and that and the research shows that as well, that people are less self-focused. I mean, self-criticism and shame are incredibly self-focused states of mind. And yes. when you counter that with self-compassion, you're actually less self-focused. 
I, I love that. And, you know, uh, can I share a story? It reminded me of a story, yes. uh, you know, of course, in all traditions have these stories to illustrate the point. But there was a beautiful, uh, a, um, a young monk goes to the master and says, well, how, what is compassion? So he says, come with me and stand here by the window. And uh, from the window, they can see a beggar uh, who's sitting on the street and begging. And a, a an old lady passes by and she throws a gold coin into uh, in his um, lap. And and uh, then a few minutes later, a merchant walks by and throws five uh, coins in his uh, lap. And then a little boy goes by and the beggar gives him a flower. And so then the, the, man, the, uh, the master turns to, uh, to the student and says, who do you think is most compassionate? Uh, compassionate? So the student says, uh, the merchant. And uh, he says, no, son, you're wrong. And so then he says, uh, you know, the old lady who threw the coin, she uh, pitied the uh, the beggar and pity is not compassion. And then uh, the uh, and he says, you know, the gold, uh, the five gold coins, it may look like he was very generous, but he actually was running. Um, there was a, a um, you know, the government had come to take taxes. So he wanted to <laughs> escape that. So he threw that. And, and the beggar in his misery, he was able to understand the need of the child. And so he is the most compassionate. So it just kind of, I think in your, uh, and, and I would love for you to maybe comment on that, the, uh, because it may be lost sometimes on people when you use um, the term, uh, um, our suffering, because suffering sounds dramatic, but, yeah. but suffering is not what dramatic as you mean. It actually is a good way to, it's a psychological term, but can you comment yeah, to yeah. talk about that? Yeah, no, it's true. And some people, and I, I usually try to remind people that I don't necessarily mean it that way, but yes, sometimes suffering is like, you know, big suffering. I mean, stubbing your toe, any moment of emotional discomfort or pain, right? Some big, some small, but the idea is to relate to any sort of negative or difficult or challenging experience, physical pain, uh, mental pain with the supportive stance. I mean, think about it, stubbing your toe, if you just, you know, it, it may be a small thing, but oftentimes small things explode into big things because we ignore them or we just you know get mad at people or we, you know, yell and kick the dog or something <laughs> like that. You know, so the idea is it's, it's just a, it's just a mindset toward any sort of difficulty or negative emotion or challenge. It, it's really a way we hold pain again, big or small. Do we, do we hold it with a feeling of connectedness of kindness of support are we mindful of that? And when we aren't, we aren't mindful of it, or we get lost in it, or uh, we ignore it. But actually, that's that's when it starts going off to the races, you know, getting out of control. So you know, uh, so I I see your framework so running parallel to the framework of uh, understanding executive function. So if you talk about mindfulness, which is that executive attention, which is knowing not only paying attention but knowing what to pay attention to, and mm -hmm. continuously monitoring paying mm -hmm. off that attention. And, and what, one of the lovely things, I think, in the mindfulness um, uh, literature, as well as your work, you talk about this paying uh, attention to your suffering is kind of taking and dedicating some attention inward so that the emotions that it generates doesn't take away your capacity to think or feel in a less or more handicapped way. So um, executive right. attention, so when we talk about executive attention training is really... Yeah. Um, heightening the awareness of where the attentional resources are going. Um, right, right. And so that's why a lot of people think of self-compassion as an emotion regulation strategy. I mean, it, yeah. 
this part but that's not that, fully though because yeah, you have not, the humanity concept that is that same you know taking mindfulness concept from the eastern world there's a whole culture that's, that's right yeah too, right so i think it's i think it's more than that but it is part of it in terms of how it functions and why it's good for well-being i do think it's because it allows so when so when you're emotionally dysregulated it derails your ability to have useful executive function yes right? and so when you're more emotionally regulated you're more able to have successful executive function. So the link, again, it's more than that, but it... it um, um, yeah, well, but- some part of it, yeah, you're absolutely right, because you're also talking about which is executive control is trying to control attention. That's not what we're talking about. That is actually becoming this person who's always present, which is yes. not in, in executive function arena, more often people talk about, which needs, needs to be, uh, yeah. you know, really yeah. improve your attentional awareness. Uh, the second part that I really love in, in your three-part framework is the common humanity. And one question I had about that, you know, it is a this capacity to take perspective and um, being able to explore the idea beyond one's own suffering that everybody has suffering, which means the theory of mind concept, you know, that right. if I, if this happens to me, somebody slights me or insults me, my feelings get hurt, or somebody leaves a bad comment, or texts me um, in a rude way. Um, it's the same reaction, any person who is texted rudely to. <laughs> and, and I think that forgetfulness is, is actually a, a problem with people who have inflexibility, cognitive inflexibility, affective inflexibility, and uh, a lot of disorders, including, you know, autism spectrum and ADHD have deficits in that. that. So I was just curious, yeah. um, in your work, uh, is this capacity to take perspective of the other, particularly when you're down, um, normatively um, easy for people to do? Or if that's a, if it's even a, it's a question that makes sense, yeah, or no, how do we does. think about I mean, that? I, I think we haven't. I, I certainly haven't studied it in that type of detail. I think it'd be really interesting to do so. I mean, I do think that. Perspective taking skills are very useful for self compassion. Um, you know, imagining what so what someone kind would say to you about yeah. this, or again, imagining what you would say to someone else. Uh, most people don't do it automatically. I'm not sure. I mean, it could be partly because they have poor executive function skills. Um, I think it actually. Personally, I think a, a bigger problem is because when we fail or make a mistake or things are difficult, we go into threat defense mode, hmm. right? And then we're activated. So our, our sympathetic nervous system is activated. And I, I think, it, again, my gut tells me it's more that the emotions derail us, which inhibits our ability to use these skills as opposed necessarily to theory of mind. But it's interesting, I'm trying to think about my son. So my son, Rowan, who's autistic, right? He's uh, like, like most autistic people, he's very, a lot of challenges with theory of mind. Very hard for him to just figure out what other people must be feeling through the, through the normal ways that, you know, people nor- normally develop, neurotypical people develop earlier. But he's very warm and loving, hmm. right? So it's like, He's not going to figure out that you're upset about something, that you're probably upset about something. But if you say, he'll really care about it. Hmm. So for instance, theory of mind doesn't necessarily mean you care. Con artists have great theory of mind skills. Absolutely. Take that to, you know, take advantage of you. 
So they are different. The warmth and the concern is different from the perspective taking in the theory of mind. Um, and so, you know, so Roland, he does struggle. He's starting to, like for years and years and years, he said, give me that self-compassion stuff, mommy. But it was mainly because he didn't want to accept the pain. He found the pain so scary and so distasteful that he, he still he still believed that he could figure it out and like control it and make it go away. <laughs> yeah. And I, I would say that was probably probably a bigger block than his difficulty taking the perspective of another, although it probably added into it. You know, so it's again, that's the thing. So there's the cognitive component, which is you think of as executive function or theory of mind, but then there's also the emotional affective. Yeah. Yeah. And And they're, they're both and they, then they, and they interact as well. Um, And it's interesting you, you say that because uh, yeah, we, um, have have had an amazing um, um, guest on my podcast who has talked about uh, whose work is in this two types of theory of mind, uh, four actually, if you think about it, because one is affective theory of mind, the thinking about and feeling the feelings other feel, others feel, and then the cognitive theory of mind, which is thinking of the uh, thinking of other people's thinking and feelings. So mm-hmm. there's a two buckets, but then there's inter- um, uh, you know, interaffective theory of mind be- between people and then within self. So, huh? so in that framework, you definitely see deficits in some parts of it, in depending on that de- uh, neuroatypical um, developmental yeah. pattern. And right, so that's right. why you you gave such a beautiful example of, um, uh, particularly on a, a autism, a person with autism may not be able to explain that you are or understand like the complexity of the diet that got you there, but they can meet you there and, yeah. and offer you um, comfort. That really is what humans do to each other, but yes. they may not be able to verbally guide you to think differently about what you got heard about. So it's a really complicated thing for them. It is. It is it to is be um, complicated. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this interesting, then can we talk the, other side of compassion, which is cruelty, you know, and uh, um, because you talk about this recognizing humanity, is cruelty more uh, coming from inability to recognize the humanity or is unwillingness to recognize because it benefits self? It could be both, of course, but what, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts about the role of cruelty and why this F2F, you know, the not having face-to-face interaction, particularly on on the internet, when you leave comments, you see the more cruel side of people. Uh, what 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 is happening there? Yeah, well, I mean, it's like <laughs> so many things. <laughs> I think it's not a million miles away from what happens internally. It's like we dehumanize people, right? Yeah. So when we're feeling the humanity of ourselves or other people, we naturally tend to be kinder, right? When we're feel connected to someone, someone we care about. Um, but when we aren't feeling their humanity, we tend to, yeah, we, we take our negative emotions out on them, right? Some people try to exploit others or, or abuse them. I mean, what's really interesting is most people, if you, if you get their scores, a self-report score of their compassion levels, they're like 4.5 out of 5.0. I mean, most people are off the charts in terms of compassion for others. And then you look at the world, right? <laughs> it's actually not very compassionate. And so I think there's a lot of 
I mean, some of that social desirability bias, but also I think some of its context, like we're compassionate to some people that we relate to. to. In group, yeah. People yeah, and we don't favor. we are compassionate to others that we kind of call others with the other side of the political spectrum, or you know, they aren't they aren't they aren't part of my life, so I'm just not really gonna think about them. Yeah, it, you know, it's complicated. I you know, I I I wouldn't I wouldn't presume to be able to say I had a really good answer for that. But one thing I one thing I do know is that self-compassion actually because of the ability of self-compassion to hold all this, all the difficult stuff like anger and shame and, you know, insecurity and greed and all these things that drive a lot of these negative social interactions, the more self-compassion we have, the more we're able to have compassionate relationships with others. (coughs) Sorry. So it's actually, it's not the case that we must be self-compassionate before we're compassionate to others. Because in fact, most people are more compassionate to others than themselves. So in fact, the majority of people are a lot more compassionate to others than themselves. So it's not, not the case that you have to have it, but when you do have it, it actually enables you to sustain being compassionate to others uh, without burning out. It also helps you deal with your own negative emotions in a way that may end up harming others if they aren't if they aren't processed or dealt with in a healthy manner. And it's so neat, you know, uh, this conversation about um, some uh, clever ways to first manage your emotions so that you can come to a place where you can then activate the compassion that you need to feel and compassion for people who don't deserve it, you know, or who have legitimately hurt you or hurt your people or whatever. I recently came across Natalie Wynn. She is a transgender activist and a YouTube, YouTube star and uh, JK Rowling, uh, you know, author of uh, Harry Potter um, said something really um, interesting and, and, uh, unacceptable if you ask me about, uh, uh, you know, um, some hateful uh, thoughts towards transgender. And and um, so she did a YouTube video on it, and it was such an interesting pivot. So she said, uh, because, you know, um, Natalie Wynn herself has a great following, she could have just spewed hate and kind of fed into that, that, you know, how people are and, and lambasted her. She just get, took her her perspective and say, if this is what you were saying, let me give you some more information. So maybe you will understand why you said is probably not what you would have said if you knew this. So it was such a wonderful way to present it. Uh, But yes, it did require. And then I later on heard Natalie Wynn's interview and she said it took a lot (laughs) to Uh do that. (laughs) So, um, you know, I I think lastly, I want to kind of come in the space of, um, morality and and the benefits of, of compassion are enormous you know as your work shows that there it's a predictive of well-being it mm-hmm. also um is a better alternative than pursuing self-esteem uh it is linked with coping and resilience uh it leads to healthier behaviors not just for the sake of outcome but just living a better well-lived life and relationships and relationships. relationships oh well then before we we talk about morality maybe you, you can help me understand the research in relationship. And I want to give you a cute story, um, if I may. Um, so my my parents, you know, my father was a big a fan of China, of fine bone China. And uh, so we would have uh, sets in India, you know, you drink tea and saucer and very, you know, kettle, like very British uh, influence there. 
And my mother, God forbid, was a little bit not so careful. And so she would chip and he would get really upset because that was one thing that he really cared about. And so one day she went to um, her dear friend's house who also had an even bigger collection and fancier china. And then the wife dropped one of the cups and broke it. And the husband said, oh, poor cup. It has to end your life. It was such a sad day for you. But you know what? Thank you for serving us. And then he went on <laughs> picking up trash and threw it. So my mom came running home and told my husband, my, my father, you wouldn't believe this is what I witnessed. And she said, ever since I told him that story, he never, ever made a big deal of any glass or cup or mug chipping ever. And that just changed their relationship. Their fights were about not big things. It was about the cup and then they stopped. So tell us why it's so valuable when you're compassionate towards it yourself, not other person. It actually elevates the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So for instance, we did a study with couples long term, a year or more in a romantic relationship and, and people were described by their partners. If the more self-compassionate they were, the more they were described by their partners as being caring, intimate, less controlling. People were more satisfied in oh, relationships lovely. when their partners were self-compassionate. Um, and basically what's happening is, uh, well, first of all, if you can meet a lot of your own needs, you aren't so dependent on your partner to do meet your all your, your needs exactly as you want them met. Oh, that's but you've profound. got more resources yourself to find some, you know, inner inner ways to be happy or, or to deal with some of your issues. So you, so you aren't expecting so much of your partner. And so one of the things that happens is you're less controlling, for instance. If you can meet your own needs and you, you have your own space, you can actually give your partner more space. Another really important thing is at least more authentic more authenticity in relationships. Because when you can accept yourself and your flaws and be kind and supportive to yourself, you can be more authentic, which oh, allows yes. for more intimacy, right? So Thank there's you. a lot of research showing that the kinder you are to yourself, you know, the more you're able to, like, for instance, be forgiving toward others and, and take their perspective. So it definitely is good for others as well as uh, oneself. So. so I will change my mind and uh, we'll end with how do we gain self-compassion? And you have wonderful, well, the, the most recent um, self, uh, guided meditation that you have added is my favorite, by the way, uh, which is the um, uh, the fierce compassion. Oh, really? And, oh, wonderful. Yeah, I just added that. Yeah, so- I um, love that. So tell us what we can do and tell us what's going to be in your new book. Yeah, so just to say, um, so my new book is called Fierce Self-Compassion, you know, how women can harness kindness to speak up, claim their power and thrive. Um, because there really are these two sides of self-compassion. There's what I like called the tender side and the fear side. Both are equally important and they, we need both and they need to be balanced and integrated. So again, the tenderness is more the accepting, soft, gentle, nurturing side. But the fear side is like the pr protective side. For instance, you talked about morality. Um, standing up to injustice is an, an crucial act of self-compassion. Right. So oh, wow. Me Too yes. movement, Black Lives Matter movement, you know, all the yes. movements toward greater equality. These are acts of self-compassion, you know, and even if even if you aren't part of the group, you know, like I'm a white person. But what happens to people of color impacts me as well. So it's, it's really all you know, self and other at some at some level that distinction kind of breaks down. So it's all really important part of compassion. I didn't so, think about um, that. That's so drawing our boundaries, saying no, um, also meeting our own needs. In other words, not just subordinating our needs. Like women, especially, are raised. People like us if we if we're self sacrificing. 
And they like us when we say yes. And they don't like us so much when we say no. And part of self-compassion is saying, I'm sorry, I'd love to help, but I can't. I'm busy. I'm doing something. This is really important to me. And it's not like more, it's not selfish. You're prioritizing yourself over others, but you know, people compromise more. It's like, yeah, my needs are important. Your needs are important. And really valuing ourselves in addition to others um, is really a, an important part of self-compassion. And then, of course, motivating change, right? Yes. No, and not just motivating change inside, also in the world, yes, right? So yes. this is like the action, power-oriented side of self-compassion. What am I going to do to be healthier? What am I going to do to change the world so it's not so destructive and oppressive, right? And, and, and the reason it's written for women is because gender socialization Basically, first of all, it inhibits everyone. It inhibits those raised as boys. Not They can't really be tender. They're called names that they're too tender, right? They're called sissies and all these other oh, yes. names. And that really harms boys' ability to use the power of compassion to help regulate their emotions and to heal from wounds and kind of be emotionally intelligent. It really harms men. Uh, but for women, of course, they're, they're allowed to be tender and nurturing, but they aren't allowed to be fierce. They aren't allowed to get angry. They aren't allowed to speak up, you know, at least traditionally. You know, obviously things are changing, but the vestiges of this are still there and still uh, impacting women. And so that's why I wrote this book, especially for women, because, because, nurture, because compassion is part of the female gender role toward mm. others, not toward ourselves. You know, we kind of know compassion. We're kind of compassion experts. So yes. again, we're kind of doing this twist because I, I like to call it our mama bear energy. Right? <laughs> yes. We know how to be mama bear. We know how to be fierce for others to protect our children, right? Or to protect people we love. And that, that's in us. It's, but it's only allowed to come out in the context of protecting our children. It's oh, like, wow. no, we yes. can tap into that same ferocity to help ourselves, to protect ourselves, or to protect our fellow sisters, or you know, whatever, to protect people in general. Um, and so, I have a lot of. It's not again. It's not just ideas and research. It's also a lot of practices and how you can develop them. Like so, this, for instance, this fierce friend meditation, which is where you imagine it ideally person who you know an ideal figure who combines this tenderness and fierceness because again too much tenderness without enough fierceness is complacency but too much fierceness without enough tenderness becomes aggression oh, and yes. hostility so we always need both and that, that's a that. problem as a society we're completely out of balance so it's my it's my small aim to try to help correct some of that balance Oh, you're changing lives. That's so beautiful. And this reminds me of true Buddha nature, right? It's a soft front and firm back. Yes, exactly. So morally anchored, anchored in, yes. Yes, anchored in clarity of vision and purpose and soft is that recept receptive, open, uh, yes. kind, but not silly or stupid or but not a doormat, right? Not yeah, a doormat. Exactly. Yes, idiot it's, compassion is Chung I used to say. Yeah, exactly. Well, as we end, um, we always love to hear what, you know, incredible minds like you are reading these days and what have, has influenced your uh, thought process. Ah, over the years. So gosh, well, I've been for, for my book, I've actually taken a little break of reading because I just finished it for my <laughs> book. I was reading a lot of the literature on things like women's anger, Really, um, a great book like a Sur, Sur, if I saying her name right, Soraya Chamali of Rage Becomes Her. I love that book. Kind of pe people writing about how um, the fact that women aren't allowed to harness their anger for good actually harms them, and kind of yes. what what makes healthy anger and unhealthy anger. I'm also reading a lot of Bell Hooks, who's a classic writer, but she's a um, a black feminist 
social critic who writes, but she's also Buddhist and is all about love. I mean, that's the amazing thing. She is like, she kicks ass. But she's so loving, you know, that's, I, I just, she's yes. like one of my heroes. Um, I love her. So that, that's probably the stuff. I've been, I just got um, Ethan Cross's uh, chatter, which I haven't read yet. I haven't had time, but that sounds really interesting. So um, I did yeah. not, do not know Ethan Cross's. I mean, is it a new book? Yeah, it's a new book. Um, yeah, you should, it's probably, it's, it's, I'm sure it's, it's all about self-talk. So it's probably really relevant to what you do. You actually may want to have him on your show. Oh, that would be lovely. Yeah. Well, chatter. Yeah, it looks really good. It's, it's. I just haven't had time to read it yet, but it's. Um, I've got it on my table. <laughs> you sound like a voracious reader. Oh <laughs> uh, well, uh, sometimes I also get tired. When you when you when you work on the computer all day and you write, it's like sometimes you just want to like veg out in front of TV. So I do oh, that as well. <laughs> I I I completely. I'm sending my compassion for you because you deserve it. That brilliant mind <laughs> me has. Few more, uh, uh, I mean, not children. Few more books to birth. So yes, yeah, you're yeah. waiting for more. Right. Well, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you everyone for tuning in and listening to this amazing conversation. Remember to be kind to yourself, and and if you haven't already found inspiration, uh, there are tons of um, um, guided meditations that uh, Kristen has created for us. So please follow. I, as I said, my fierce friendship. Uh, uh, mindfulness self-compassion meditation is my favorite and uh keep in touch uh, share what you're if you like what you're hearing please share and have a fantastic uh, day thank you so much for being with us thank you thank you for listening to full prefrontal exposing the mysteries of executive function to contact your host sucheta kamath and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.